0: This is the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. And now, Ask the Expert with Steph. Welcome back to Ask the Expert, a segment of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast where we ask authors and historians questions directly from you, our loyal listeners, to learn more about not only the Tudors, but those that ruled before and after them. Today, we'll be traveling back to 1605, where our guest, the wonderfully talented and creative author and historian, Nicola Cornick, will take us through the failed assassination attempt against King James I, Stuart King of England, in what we now refer to as the gunpowder plot. If you've ever heard of the name Robert Catesby or Guy Fawkes, it's likely that this conspiracy is why. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest, Nicola Cornick. Hello, Nicola. Hello, thank you very much for inviting me today. I'd like to start off today as I usually do by opening the conversation with you, giving us the kind of quote in a nutshell synopsis of what the gunpowder plot of 1605 actually was. Maybe some history about why it began, some key players, and of course how it turned out. Okay. <laughs> that's quite a,
1: that's quite a big a big th- Topic. So I, I'm going to I'm going to do my very best to put that all in a nutshell. Um, what was the Gunpowder Plot? Uh, well, as you as you mentioned, it was uh, it took place in 1605. It was a failed attempt to blow up the English Parliament and assassinate King James the First. It involved a group of Catholic conspirators who were led by Robert Catesby, um, and the aim of the plot was to re-establish Catholic rule in England, um, which of course under um, Mary Tudor uh, Catholicism had had flourished, and then with uh, with the ter- turn back to Protestantism under um, Elizabeth, uh, of course, everything changed again, so uh, as, as as you know um, and, and as people who are interested in Tudor history will know, the whole history of religion during that period was very tumultuous and When James um, inherited the throne of England from Elizabeth initially, he had promised to grant religious tolerance to to Catholics. Um, And unfortunately, that didn't happen. And I think that that was one of the major spurs to this particular plot. It really is important to see the gunpowder plot in the context of the politics and the religious climate of the late Tudor and early Stuart era. Because like all the Catholic plots that took place during the reign of Queen Elizabeth I, of course, it didn't spring just out of nowhere. It was uh, one in a succession of plots, and it was a direct consequence of the laws that denied people the right to worship freely. I think that's it in a nutshell. At least that's the context of the gunpowder plot.
0: That's a perfect nutshell. I love that. (laughs) Now, we know that they, like you said, they wanted to blow up Parliament. They wanted to get rid of... King James, did they have an idea of who they wanted to put on the throne? Well, that's a bit of, uh, a bit of the history
1: of the plot that really interests me. And in fact, it's something that I came to out, uh, from a completely different angle, because when I uh, was actually writing my first historical uh, dual time novel, um, which was based at Ashdown House, which is just down the road from me. Um, uh, That was all about uh, Princess Elizabeth, who was later the Winter Queen, who was the daughter of uh, King James I and Anne of Denmark. Um, And it was actually the intention of the plotters um, to to put Elizabeth on the throne as a puppet queen. What uh, What they were hoping to do was to blow up, Parliament, that, that would get rid of not only James, but his heir, um, Prince Henry, his elder his elder son. Um, I'm not quite sure what they planned to do about the younger son, Charles, who, of course, later became Charles I. He's not really mentioned in all of this, and he would not have been in Parliament at the time. But having got rid of the King, um, the Prince of Wales, and, uh, and indeed a great mem- uh, number of the peerage, the idea was to kidnap nine-year-old Princess Elizabeth and put her on the throne. Now, She was at the time in the guardianship of Lord and Lady Harrington at Coombe Abbey in Warwickshire. And this was quite close to Robert Catesby's power base in the Midlands, if you like. Um, So it was kind of like a a secondary part of the plot that after the the explosion had happened and Parliament had been destroyed, a separate group of the plotters would then um, kidnap uh, Elizabeth from Coombe Abbey um, and, as I say, put her on the throne.
0: This all feels very unlikely to have worked. Now, again, in hindsight, because it didn't work, we can say things like that. Exactly. But what What really made them even attempt this? Because how did like how did they really believe that this was going to go well? Well, I think that's. I think,
1: firstly, yeah, you hit the nail on the head, really, when you say that. Um, with the benefit of hindsight, it seems it seems unlikely to us that this would have worked. Um, you know, we're looking back on it not only with with, with the benefit of hindsight and, and knowing that it failed, but also we've got another a long, long list of other failed rebellions and plots throughout history that are comparable. That also colours our judgment and makes us think: How on earth did they think this was going to work out? But actually. If you take it at face value, firstly, I mean, they did manage to hide a ton of gunpowder in the cellars beneath the Houses of Parliament, which wasn't discovered until the very night before it was due to to, to be ignited and to uh, um, for the whole plot to take place. So, you could argue that actually, if they managed to do that without um, anyone knowing, um, you know, if they hadn't been betrayed, perhaps it might have worked. Um I think the idea, obviously, as I mentioned just a minute ago, was that in the ensuing chaos in the country, they would then then be able to snatch Princess Elizabeth uh, from her guardians. And um, and not just that, but then the whole uh, Catholic gentry and the aristocracy would rise behind them uh, and and that would restore um, the, the Catholic rule. I mean, having said that, on balance, it does seem very unlikely that it would have succeeded. I mean, I think... This actually brings us onto the character of, of, of Robert Catesby himself and who he was because so much of the gunpowder plot hinges on the fact that Robert Catesby was the driving force behind that. I mean, as we'll no doubt get to discussing, there were members of the... There were conspirators and members of their family who were very unhappy about the plot and were trying to dissuade him from going ahead with it. They didn't think it was going to work and they were worried if it did. Um, but Catesby was, uh, by his... Very nature at this point in his life, just so utterly focused on pushing through with what he intended to do that he simply would not, um, he just wouldn't listen to it to reason. He wouldn't listen to anybody else at all. And because he was so persuasive, He kind of carried everybody else else along with him. I mean, he must have been an extraordinarily, well, he was said to have been an extraordinarily charismatic and persuasive man. So his determination and his single mindedness was what pushed the plot through, even when there were other people who were saying exactly what we've just said. Surely this cannot work.
0: So we're going to come right back to to Robert Catesby then, because I think this is a, a great introduction to him. Um, and we want to kind of dive a little bit deeper into who he was. But before we get to that, can you tell us who the other conspirators were besides him? Obviously, he was the leader. Who did he have as his kind of minions in the plan. Okay, yes. So there were quite a lot of conspirators and it's actually quite –
1: so it's a a complicated group um, and they didn't all come together at the same time. Um, But So it started off with Robert Catesby and he was always the force behind the plan. Um, So he conceived the idea of it and, and, I mean, when I maybe talk a little bit more about him and his sort of – the progression of his beliefs and so on, um, we – We can see how that kind of fits in with that. But in 1604, when he was putting this plan together... the first conspirators that he invited to join him were his cousins um, uh, and, uh, well, sorry, his cousin Thomas Winter. He, his, his, uh, Thomas Winter's brother, Robert, also joined the plot later on. Um, and then there were two other promis- prominent recusants, as they were called, Catholic gentlemen who were part of this network of, of, of Catholic uh, supporters and believers in the country um, who were very active um, in in wanting to bring back Catholic rule, and that was John and Christopher Wright. So so those three came in on the plot quite early on. Um, The Wrights, everybody knew each other, and I think this is one of the really interesting things about the gunpowder plot was the very tight network of family and friend connections, relationships that there were between almost all of the plotters. So... um, Robert Catesby, for example, already knew the, the Wright brothers because they'd all taken part in the Essex Rebellion together in 1601. Um, the Wright's uh, sister, Martha, who was married to another of the gunpowder plotters, Thomas Percy. Um, and again, another interesting uh, connection, um, John and Christopher Wright had gone to school with Guy Fawkes. So that was how they had first come into contact with him and knew about him. But they'd all been uh, involved in previous conspiracies, previous plans to invite the Spanish to invade or um, plus, as I say, like the Essex Rebellion. So they were all known to each other. And it was, in fact, um, Thomas Winter, Robert Catesby's cousin, who brought Guy Fawkes back to England with him in 1604 after he had... Um, he Winter had gone on a, a trip over to, to Spain to try and persuade Philip III of Spain again to um, to support an invasion and um, to support the, the rebellion. Um, he was getting the impression that Philip wasn't interested and, in fact, this was proved to be correct. Philip was more interested in making peace with James at this stage. Uh, but when, um, but when um, Winter came back to England, he brought Guy Fawkes back with him. Um, Fawkes had been fighting... Um, for the Spanish in the 80 Years' War. Um, but that was the point he came back in 1604 and joined with the plot. So that, that those were the kind of the original plotters. Um, later on, um, a little bit later on, in May of 1604, Catesby recruited Thomas Percy, who was a, a prominent member of, of the plot. He was constable of Annick Castle and the cousin of the Earl of Northumberland. So he was quite a, a, a big figure, if you like. It was he who rented the ground floor vault under the House of Lords, which had um, been... Which which had been vacated by a coal merchant fortuitously, and then they were able a bit later on to rent another uh, space that was vacated as well. So he was the one who secured the space under the Houses of Parliament, uh, and Guy Fawkes was there uh, posing uh, posing as his servant uh, uh, later on when he was actually looking out after the gunpowder. Um, other conspirators, because there was a big group of them uh, John Grant he was brother in law to thomas winter um, he was recruited the same spring he he was given the responsibility of buying um, the weapons which the conspirators wanted for the rebellion that was supposed to follow the blowing up of the parliament um, uh, Thomas Winter brought his own brother Robert in at the same time. Um, Robert Keyes was recruited in that autumn again to look after the gunpowder and the other equipment that was stored at Percy's house in Lambeth. So you're getting quite a, already quite a big group, and of course, with a big group of conspirators comes the danger that somebody is going to talk, or somebody's not going to be happy with it, um, and then. Finally, Robert Catesby took another step, much closer to the to the actual time that he had planned uh, for for the for the plot. Closer to uh, in the sort of late summer, early autumn of sixteen o five, he brought in his own servant Thomas Bates, but then he brought in um, his cousin Francis Tresham, and this was critical, really. Uh, Francis Tresham was to play an important part in the plot and arguably in betraying the plot. At the same time, he also invited two other Catholic recusants to join the plot, uh, Ambrose Rookwood and Sir Everard Digby. And he specifically asked for those two to to join them because they were rich. He needed money. I mean, they perennially needed money, not just to buy the gunpowder and everything else, but the weapons and the horses for the rebellion and so on. So at this point, you know, you've got a really big group of people who all know about the plot, who all have family connections that tie them to each other and together. Um, They've all got different thoughts and concerns. By the time we get close to the plot, quite a number of them, particularly Francis Tresham, are trying to talk Catesby out of it. Um, so, uh, So, yes, it's a very volatile situation. And I think maybe under those circumstances with so many conspirators, it made it much more likely that the plot would be betrayed.
0: Did all of these conspirators have families at home? And did they share any of their... Did they share this with their families at home or did they just try to keep them in the dark and just say, Oh, I'm you know, going out for a, a male?
1: <laughs> so this again is is kind of a, a, a really a kind of interesting part of the um of the whole the whole debate really because I think there were, beyond the kind of conspirators themselves, there were a lot of people who knew about the plot, if not in an active way. Most, as I say, most of the families, um, most of the conspirators were either related to each other by marriage or by blood, or they um, had relations and friends in common. Um, And so it's not a big stretch to imagine that their wives, mothers, uh, even brothers, fathers, uncles, whoever, who might not have actually been active in the plot were aware of it. Um, And certainly, um, we do know, I mean, one of the clearest indications that that that, you know, the plot was known about, comes in September 1605, when a number of um, prominent Catholics made a pilgrimage to the Holy Well of St. Winifred in Wales. Um, and this group included um, Sir Everard Digby, who um, was, had been recruited as one of the plotters at this point, and his wife, Mary. It also included, of course, Anne Vaux, who was very well-known, a well-known recusant. She was related to the Treshams. Um, She was obviously um, the person who was kind of who protected Father Garnet, that very well-known Catholic priest who was all part of this group as well. And Mary said to Anne, um, she asked Anne, in fact, where the two of them would, and I quote, bestow themselves until the brunt was passed in the beginning of the Parliament. So it was clear at that point that um, Everard Digby had told Mary about about the, the plan to the point of actually the detail of of, of it being something to do with the Parliament. Um, Anne herself um, wasn't uh, hadn't until this point been had suspected something was going on, but hadn't uh, known exactly what was going on. And and she was then so concerned that she spoke to uh, Father Garnet and said. is there anything, you know, I fear something terrible is going to happen with these wild heads, as she referred to them. They're going to do something terrible and, and asked him specifically to speak to Robert Catesby to try to dissuade him. And she also noticed on her way back from the pilgrimage, she went to the Tresham's, uh, to, to Francis Tresham's manor uh, and noticed there uh, and commented on the number and quality of the horses that he was assembling. So she, again, was aware that there was some sort of rebellion afoot and there's a lot of dis- Discomfort between the family, the families, and the women of the family of these different families, all knowing, talking to each other covertly, saying, "You know what? What can we do about this?" Trying to persuade Catesby to change his mind. Really, so yes, without a doubt, I think they a lot of people knew about it, and a lot of people were concerned about it.
0: Okay, let's get into a little bit more of the history of of Catesby. So. Why was he so religiously zealous, I guess, fervent? You know, um, if you could give us a little bit of the background of his life um, up until the point where he decided to, to do this, um, just to give us some kind of background and put it into context, maybe as to why he was interested in, uh, in blowing everybody up. Yes. So
1: Robert Catesby, I think, is a very, very interesting Character um, and his progression towards becoming what I would say was a zealot in religion really wasn't wasn't as straightforward as you might imagine. So he was born in about uh, 1572 during the reign of Queen Elizabeth. The first, and he was the third, but the only surviving son of Sir William Catesby and Anne Catesby, who was born into the Throckmorton family, which was another prominent um, recusant family. So both of these families, the Catesbys and the Throckmortons, were were kind of uh, well known gentry families. They were not in the first rank of nobility, although they were connected to. Um, Uh, to the aristocracy. But they owned land and property. They had minor titles. Um, And the Catesby family had, in fact, risen to prominence in the 15th century, uh, when an earlier William Catesby was one of Richard III's royal councillors. Now, of course, he had a spectacular uh, fall from grace. Um, he was captured at the Battle of Bosworth and executed three days later. Um, and Henry VII confiscated the Catesby lands at that point. But interestingly, they managed to come back from that um, in about in fourteen ninety six I think it was some of, of their lands were restored to, um, to his son, um, and actually, under the earlier members of the of the Tudor dynasty, the the Catesby family flourished really quite well. you know they were uh, gaining um, titles, they were gaining officers um, in things like sheriff of Warwickshire um, and money making good marriages, sound marriages. But it all started to turn and go a bit wrong again with Robert Catesby's father, Sir William, because he was a a known recusant. He remained loyal to the Catholic Church. He refused to attend Church of England services. And of course, this was illegal. He was um, fined repeatedly. He was imprisoned and um, excluded from holding offices such as sheriff and anything uh, that had any kind of legal status. So Robert, therefore, grew up in this atmosphere of an intense attachment to a religious faith. Um, And not just that, but also the idea of resistance to the established law of the land, which I think is very significant. It was a kind of passive resistance in the sense that um, his father never engaged in rebellion or anything like that. But it it, it was, you know, we are going to hold to our faith no matter what. And, of course, Again, as part of this bigger network um, of of family who were all uh, recusant Catholic families, there was a strong supporting network of of, of people who felt the same. Uh, Sir Thomas Tresham, for example, who was Francis Tresham's father, he was one of the prime leaders of this group of prominent Catholic gentlemen He he was Anne Catesby's brother-in-law and he was Robert's godfather. So, again, a very influential man. So, he had all of this influence on him at a young age. He went to Gloucester Hall uh, at the University of Oxford, which was a very popular college for Catholic sympathisers. He left without graduating because, of course, that would have required him to take an oath of allegiance to the Queen, which he was not able to do um, with his conscience. So far, you would kind of think, yes, he's heading... Absolutely, um, in, in that direction, it's not surprising that he's going to become an ever more sort of zealous uh, Roman Catholic. However, uh, and, and this was the background and environment he grew up in, but his life changed significantly um, in, se- uh, in 1593, um, when at about the age of 20, he married uh, Catherine Lee. She was the daughter of Sir William Lee of Stoneley. She was an heiress. She was said to be very beautiful, uh, very sweet-natured. But most importantly uh, for the big picture, really, she came from a prominent Protestant family. And this was crucial, really, to setting Robert on a, 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 what could have been a very different path in his life. Now it's—I mean, I've—I've I've researched Catherine quite a lot because um, my 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 new book, which has the background of the the Gunpowder Plot, uh, focuses on um, Anne Catesby and Catherine Catesby, and it's, it was probable that it was a love match between the two of them. Um, it's not a natural match between um, the, the sort of a, a Protestant heiress um, and a and a, a recusant and slightly uh, troublemaking son of a. a of a, of a recusant Catholic family, although there were other families where that happened. Uh, but they went to live at Chastleton House in Oxfordshire. Robert had inherited it from his grandmother. They had two sons, um, William and Robert. Uh, and although, tragically, William died as a baby, Robert Jr. flourished. So, you know, at this point, a few years into his marriage, Robert Catesby's rich, he has a family, he has the respectability of a Protestant wife, and he seems very content. So much so, in fact, that he becomes what's known as a church papist, someone who's known to have Catholic sympathies, but who attends the Protestant church and conforms with the law. And I think, had this situation continued, it's plausible to suggest to suggest that the Catesby family might have flourished as much as they had done under Henry VIII and, and, and Edward VI. It, it, it could have taken it could have taken Robert in a very, very different direction in his life. Um, but of course, there's a but, it all went very wrong when Catherine Catesby died. This was in 1598. They had obviously already lost uh, William, their eldest child, and the same year Sir William Catesby Robert's father died as well. Um, and it's been suggested that um, you know, to lose a child, a wife, and a father in the space of a couple of years would have led to a grief that was absolutely devastating for Robert Catesby. Both his wife and his father were perhaps moderating influences on his character. And it's very noticeable that after this point, he re-engages with his Catholic faith, but with extra zeal. If I were to speculate, I'd say perhaps he felt that God was displeased with him for his previous life and had punished him because that was a theme that came out later with the gunpowder plot. Or perhaps he simply felt that his religion was all that he had left to him after so much loss. Anyway, uh, whatever the cause, this was when Robert became involved in the Earl, Earl of Essex's rebellion. He was imprisoned, he was fined £3,000, uh, and from then on, he was turning his attentions more and more to um, to rebellion, to restoration of the Catholic faith, and of course, to the gunpowder plot.
0: And just this all is happening now with no, no care for the consequences that would, because they knew what would happen to them if they were caught, right? It's just that was less important than getting it done.
1: I think to him, to, to Catesby it most, certainly was less important than getting... You know, he actually said that um, himself to, uh, you know, both Thomas Tresham noticed, notably and um, um, Ambrose Rookwood said, you, you know, this is a terrible thing that, that we're planning to do and not only are we, you know, you're planning on killing innocent men um, as well because let's let's... Be honest. um, A ton of of, uh, gunpowder would have devastated the whole of Westminster. It wouldn't just have been the Parliament building and everybody in it, but it would have been um, the whole surrounding area as well. And of course, they were concerned as well because their members of their own families were going to be um, in Parliament. So they wanted some of the other conspirators wanted assurances that these people would be warned, Um, and uh, so. Every time anybody raised this with Catesby and whether even Father Garnet and and other priests, he was always just completely adamant and single-minded that, as he said, um, it was a price worth paying. Uh, He was fairly contemptuous of the House of Lords and and members of the peerage, calling them atheists and and fools and cowards. Um, So he just simply wouldn't be swayed from his course. And I think whenever something like this happens, you do come back to the character of the of the person who's who's directing the plot and and you have to wonder you know at, at his powers of persuasion uh, kind of to be able to carry largely carry these people with him to to an end when as you say absolutely they all knew if they got caught it's high treason there's no question there's no question you know that it's it's going to end badly for them and i think they were all terrified Uh, and and he and he was the only one who seemed to be just completely sort of cool about it and just carried on
0: pushing through he was confident in his plan, right? If, if the leader is, isn't is confident and is just cool about it, I mean, they're not going to inspire any sort of uh, respect or, or following. Right? No. So he had to be the one who was who was composed about it. Absolutely. Um,
1: but I think he he oversteps that mark where most of us would say, you know, if you've got any common sense, you would stop or you would listen to the advice of people around you he has he is the extreme zealot he is that person who just won't just just is so fixed on on the outcome that it yeah it has to be worth it and yes, I
0: mean he's the leader he drives it forward he takes all these people with him now he's got this tunnel vision right and he's he's focused and he's going to get this done and and they're going to blow up everybody, but his plan was foiled. Yes. So, let's talk a little bit about the letter
1: yes. the letter that kind
0: of started the whole unraveling.
1: yes, the Monteagle letter is very, very interesting i think yes as as we know um the plan went badly awry um and you know, we've got this, this big group of conspirators. A number of them aren't very happy with the ruthless nature of Catesby's plan. He's pressing on with it anyway. And then on the 26th of October, 1605, an anonymous letter arrived at the home of Catholic nobleman, Lord Monteagle, who was the brother-in-law of Francis Tresham, the conspirator it warned Monteagle to stay away from Parliament as something terrible was going to happen. Now, this letter still exists. I mean, it's fascinating and it just gives me, even talking about it now with you, it gives me goosebumps just reading the words that that this anonymous uh, person wrote. Can I just read a bit of, just a, just a, a quote from it? Because it's really Can you?
0: It's really please, powerful. will you? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Let's hear it. Okay, so it
1: starts, My Lord... I would advise you, as you tender your life, to devise some excuse to shift your attendance at this Parliament. For God and man hath concurred to punish the wickedness of this time. And though there be no appearance of any stir, yet I say they shall receive a terrible blow, this Parliament, and yet they shall not see who hurts them. So that's, that feels really kind of really powerful, uh, uh, you know, it's a clear warning. It's obviously got something to do with the Parliament um, and it's sent to a prominent Catholic nobleman who was going to be there for the for the opening of the Parliament, of course, um, uh, who also, as I say, happens to be related to Thomas Tresham. Now, we don't know for sure who, who wrote the letter, Uh, But, of course, when Robert Catesby heard that he'd been betrayed, he immediately accused Francis Tresham – sorry, did I say Thomas Tresham before? Francis Tresham – of it because he knew – obviously, that Tresham had all the way through been very reluctant to go ahead with the plot. And, of course, um, Monteagle was his brother-in-law. And twice he accused Tresham. um, And things actually got violent. Some of the conspirators got together. Catesby um, accused uh, Tresham. There was a fight. uh, And twice Tresham denied um, that it was him. So um, who knows? Maybe it was. He was the most obvious candidate. Um, Thomas Winter? He also had links to the Monteagle household. Um, Ambrose Rookwood was another of the conspirators who obviously wasn't at all happy about what was happening and could conceivably have warned uh, uh, somebody, you know, somebody he knew, you know, just don't go ahead. With so many people aware of the existence of the plot, there are lots of... Possibilities. And of course, there is also the other school of thought um, that suggests that it was actually Robert Cecil, Lord Salisbury, James's um, chief minister, who set it all up and he wrote the letter himself.
0: We did get a lot of questions about Cecil because people do think that he had some involvement. So, what do you believe? Yes. I mean,
1: I didn't initially, interestingly, when I was researching it, I didn't initially think that was the case. But the more that I went on and looked at what happened, the more likely it seemed to be to me. Uh, and I do think it's a very plausible idea. We do know that Cecil was aware... I mean. Robert Catesby had been on, on, on his radar, as as it were, his Tudor version of his radar um, ever, you know, from before the time that Elizabeth had died. In fact, when Elizabeth did die, Catesby was one of the people that the government had locked up just in case they caused trouble. So he knew Catesby was a troublemaker. He, he was on the kind of watch list. Um, Cecil, I would go further and say, knew that there was definitely a plot afoot. Um, even if he didn't know the precise details of it, um, so and of course it was in his interests to catch as many of the conspirators and and their sympathizers as possible, um, and and that would lead on to James bringing in even harsher measures against against Catholicism. Because there's no proof of this. There is a reference that's very tantalising in Cecil's correspondence at the time that could be taken as a suggestion that he was manipulating the plot as he was sowing seeds, as he put it, um, and made a reference to the Midlands, which of course was the area uh, where Catesby had his, his sort of power base and where they were hoping to to kidnap uh, the Princess Elizabeth. So that's maybe a clue that he was involved. We do know that he certainly protected Lord Monteagle in the aftermath of the plot um, giving the um, giving those who were investigating it very clear instructions that Monteagle had acted in in good faith and you know there was going there should be no charge made against him which you know is fair enough because after all he took the letter Monteagle took the letter directly to uh, Robert Cecil um, and Uh, You know, but some people also say, well, perhaps Monteagle was actually a spy for Cecil all along. I think this is the the fascinating thing about um, Robert Cecil. He was so wily. Uh, It feels absolutely the kind of thing he could have done, but we can't know for sure. But I think for what it's worth, I do think he did know about the plot in advance, even if he didn't actually write the letter himself.
0: Wiley is such a great adjective for him. Um, it, it just, it's really fitting. Uh, okay, so the letter now has been sent to Lord Monteagle. He brings it right to Cecil. What happens next?
1: So, yes, um, yes. If we take things at face value, um, Lord Monteagle passes the letter to Robert Cecil. Um, the authorities do then go and search the Houses of Parliament. Um, and this is where, again, you can make a case for Cecil being a bit sort of, you know, it feels like he knows what's going on really and he's not quite ready yet to to expose the plot because when they went the first time to search the Houses of Parliament, they actually found Guy Fawkes sitting next to a big file, uh, pile of firewood in in this cellar. Um, it's almost unbelievable. Um, he told the, the people, the, the, the investigators that... Um, it was a, that he was Thomas Percy's servant. Obviously, this was his cover story. He told them that the firewood belonged to Thomas Percy. And unbelievably, at that point, they went away again. So there's a, a space of time, not, not many days, but a bit of time where then the King, Cecil, the Privy Council all get together and talk about this. They've got the Monteagle letter, obviously. Um, somebody says, why would Thomas Percy, who's a known Catholic sympathiser, be renting a cellar in Westminster and filling it with firewood? It almost feels like um, Cecil's waiting for a few other people to, you know, put two and two together and take the steps and that he already knows all of this. But, yes, he agrees. Um, and so the... the. Um, The Privy Council sent Thomas Gnivert, a a trusted courtier and an MP, to re-examine the cellar and its contents. And of course, on this occasion, it's he who uncovers the gunpowder underneath this big pile of firewood and arrests Guy Fawkes.
0: When Guy Fawkes is arrested then, obviously he is not the only participant in this. There are you know, 15 other guys that you yes. mentioned earlier today, did he rat out his friends or did they find them themselves? How did the, how did everybody else get uncovered? Okay. So,
1: well, firstly, Guy Fawkes, this is in some, ref, in some references, uh, this is referred to as Guy Fawkes's finest hour to start with. He, um, he wouldn't even identify who he was. Uh, he wouldn't give his name. He refused to implicate any of the other plotters to start with, except for Thomas Percy, whom obviously he'd already mentioned, so he couldn't really go back on that. Um, But despite what started off as a barrage of questions from from his interrogators, he gave nothing away at all. And actually, in the record, they are, you know, they're actually grudgingly admiring his fortitude because, of course, inevitably in this period, at that point, then um, they turn to torture. Um, And he still holds on. He still holds on until he hears uh, what's happened to the rest of the um, the rest of the the conspirators, um, which i will come on to in a minute, um, but they did break him eventually um, under torture, and he did in fact make three confessions. Um, he was the one who explained the plan um, to put the Princess Elizabeth on the throne, and he implicated five of the plotters, um, including Francis Tresham. Um, but he had held out whilst um, everything else had been going on because... um when word went round that he'd been arrested, Robert Catesby uh, fled London with a lot of the other conspirators. I mean, they'd been planning to do this anyway. The idea, obviously, was to blow up the Houses of Parliament and then go off up to the Midlands to have this fictitious hunting party that was then going to go off um, armed, on all these expensive horses armed uh, to kidnap the Princess Elizabeth. But obviously, after the first part of that didn't work out, Catesby, Thomas Percy, John Wright and a number of the others all fled from London and astonishingly Catesby was still hoping that the rebellion would follow in the same way as when he discovered he'd been betrayed he didn't abandon the plot he was still holding on to this idea that despite the fact that the first part of it hadn't worked the rebellion would happen anyway so he and the other conspirators uh, galloped off up to the Midlands, um, hoping for this rebellion, but of course nobody was prepared to join them and nobody was going to fight. So they spent um, the 6th and the 7th of November wandering around from one Catholic house to another across Warwickshire and Worcestershire. And they finally arrived at Holbeach House in Staffordshire. And this was where the, the part two of the gunpowder plot, if you like, sort of unraveled. Um, and it all came to a very ignominious end. Firstly, as they were resting on the evening of the 7th of November, they accidentally managed to blow themselves up with some gunpowder, which, astonishingly, again, they were drying in front of the fire. Um, So this injured a number of the plotters, including Robert Catesby himself. um, And that seems to have been, for Robert, what finally broke his spirit, if you like, and his belief in the plot. He saw it as Divine condemnation, as did the others. Um, they thought that they must have um, offended God. Um, that they were were doing um, that. You know that what they were actually doing, God hadn't wanted that after all. That they they just got it totally wrong. But uh, despite all of this, it, even though Catesby was 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 starting to to feel, you know, he'd made what was probably a very big mistake he then ne- then saw he had no choice other than to to fight to the death and thomas winter his cousin declared that he would do the same the, the same thing so the the men of uh, of course by this time um the sheriff of worcestershire had set out to apprehend him because um it, cecil obviously had got the, suspected or knew who who the who the conspirators were and so um On the uh, 11 o'clock on the morning of the 8th of November, those rebels who were still able to fight, who actually hadn't deserted, um, went out into the courtyard of the house where they um, met the men commanded by the Sheriff of Worcestershire. And, of course, it was all over very quickly. Um, Robert Catesby was shot. So was Thomas Percy, um, and it's said that Catesby crawled back inside the house and that he died clasping an image of the Virgin Mary in his arms. The other conspirators who were still alive were at that point captured and taken back to London to join, um, to join Guy Fawkes. So at that point, of course, that's when it, everybody knows it really is all over.
0: That whole scene that you just played out with, um, Robert Catesby and clutching the Virgin Mary and all this sounds, I, I was like watching a movie in my head while you were telling that. I feel like that was, that's such a, um, I don't want to say romantic way for it to go, but kind of,
1: um, yes, no, I do. I do totally understand what you mean. It was kind of in fitting, it, it, it was a fitting end in a way for him because he had no other alternative, did he really? All the way through, he'd been completely single-minded and determined and adamant. And although the whole thing just disintegrated around him, really, um, I think, you know, in a way, he was seeing his principles through to the end by saying, well, you know, I'm not going to get out of this alive. So,
0: yeah, but it is, I think it's it, it, it is a tragedy. It really is. And, uh, one other death that I, that I want to talk about a little bit is Guy Fawkes. Oh yeah. The way that he died is also rather interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about it?
1: Yes. Uh, hmm. Yes. So back in London, the, um, the trial of the eight surviving plotters began in January of 1606. And of course, you know, it was a show trial, really. No, no one is going to get off. Are they, um, uh, Guy Fawkes, uh, Like the others, was condemned to be hung, drawn, and quartered, which, of course, is a horrible, horrible death. I'm not not going to dwell on it. I'm, um, (laughs) I'm sure everybody knows, or at least I hope everybody knows that that that, what that entails in in the sense that you know you're you're hanged, but you're drawn and quartered before you're actually dead. So it's a really, really horrible way to 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 kill people. Um, So this happened to uh, all of the preceding uh, to all the preceding plotters um, on the gallows. Uh, but when it came to Guy Fawkes, he was the last to stand on the scaffold. He'd had to be helped up to onto it because he was his body was broken by the, the torture he'd experienced. Um, and when it was his turn to put his head in the noose, he, he looked like a broken man, basically. He, it, as I say, the hangman actually had to help him. And it was then in that split second before he was going to be hanged <laughs> that he jumped either that or the noose was incorrectly set in some way, but either way he broke his neck and died, which of course meant that he was spared the fate uh, of the drawing and quartering whilst he was still alive. So he went out in
0: a dramatic way as well. That's exactly what I was just, I was just going to say is it, it's all so dramatic and it's, all, it's, it's unfortunate. This was a, uh... It's an interesting story but when you really get down into looking at the details it's it's very sad it's very sad yes i think i think that's absolutely true it's a, it's a kind of It's
1: a very difficult story in some ways because there is no doubt, particularly if you look at it with our mindset now, that Robert Catesby was a terrorist in our our terminology. And yet, of course, beneath all of these stories and all of these plots is a very human story about people's beliefs, their family connections, their relatives, their friendships, and all of that is going on underneath the story, Uh, all these different characters, you know, Guy Guy Fawkes with his, with his courage under torture and his his bravery and his determination, clearly at the end that he was going to choose the way, like, like Catesby, the way that it would end for him. It, It is, it's, it's a really, it's a really devastating story, I think. So it's interesting in itself, but yes, as you say, there's, there's a human tragedy in there as well.
0: Exactly. Now, uh, in England especially, there's, there are certain traditions, I think, that are followed at, at the anniversary of the gunpowder plot. So what is done? Obviously, I live over here in America and we don't necessar- necessarily, I don't know that I want to say celebrate it, but we, we don't necessarily even acknowledge it, right? Because it's not. Um, but I do because I love this stuff. So <laughs> what are the things that you guys do over there um, to commemorate the gunpowder plot?
1: Yes. Well, as a public historian, because when I... Um, when i specialised in my studies i uh, i took a master's degree in public history uh, so one of the things i'm particularly interested in is the way that traditions like this evolve over hundreds of years and the things that we commemorate and the things that we forget and it's it's absolutely true that in, in england for the past 400 years you know this this has in a not a constant um, sort of commemoration. It comes and goes, but it's always there in, in the public consciousness. Um, and this started immediately after the gunpowder plot. Understandably, King James wanted to celebrate his escape from assassination. Um, so, he encouraged Londoners to uh, to celebrate um, by building bonfires. Um, and in fact, um, an Act of Parliament was then passed that decreed that the 5th of November should be a day of thanksgiving for what they called the Joyful Day of Deliverance. So it was actually an official part of the, of the calendar recognised by Parliament and the Church. And this actually remained on the statute books until 1859. So this, this kind of official celebration of, the, of, 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 of James's escape um, was how it started off. And it started off being known as Gunpowder Treason Day. Later, later Guy Fawkes became more closely associated with it when it was called Guy Fawkes Night or Bonfire Night. And really now um, it's mostly known as Bonfire Night. And um, people are still encouraged to celebrate uh, by, by burning bonfires, um, you know, 400 years after it happened. Uh, and along the way, we've also introduced... Um, Fireworks into the celebration. They came in, in in the 1650s. Slightly more problematic was the idea of burning um, effigies on the bonfire, uh, which began in the 1670s when there was another strong uprising of anti-Catholic feeling in England. Um, and and since then, throughout the centuries, um, the traditions around Guy Fawkes Night, Bonfire Night, have carried on being reinvented and coming and going. Um, as traditions do, you know, bonfires, fireworks, and the anniversary have gone hand in hand ever since. So that even now in the 21st century, we're still celebrating bonfire night. And I think um, there's, there's various different reasons for this. I mean, it's, for a start, at a cold, dark time of year in England. It actually feels uh, rather fun and exciting. And I remember... Um, uh, as, a, as a small child, bonfire night was a really big celebration uh, in my neighbourhood. Uh, it was terribly exciting because, of course, it was dark and you were outside and there were fireworks and the bonfire was warm and you got baked potatoes and it was just, there was lots of food and it was, a, it, you know, it was a, it was a really fun thing to take part in. Probably, I would say, in the last particularly in the last 50 years or so, the actual history of the gunpowder plot itself has often been lost amidst the spectacle of it. Um, And now, um, you know, in in 2022, I do think it's actually becoming less well-known and less popular. Halloween is taking over as a festive event at this same time of year. Uh, And that has become much bigger in, in the United Kingdom than it was even, you know, 10, 20 years ago. And, of course, The problem with fireworks, they're now nowhere near as popular as they used to be because they're dangerous. And actually, this year, a number of outlets are refusing to sell them at all. Uh, So this is, you know, driving people away from the traditional gunpowder sort of night celebrations. Um, Plus, of course, one hopes uh, we have to a large degree taken the anti-Catholic sentiment out of the event now that we're a more tolerant and, and secular age, at least I hope so so gunpowder, gunpowder the bonfire night itself is getting more restricted to things like big firework displays that are to put on on the fifth of November still for uh, you know community uh, events but that are run safely in 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 accordance with um, health and safety procedures but something I think that it's particularly interesting that you see now coming out of the whole Guy Fawkes idea is the Guy Fawkes mask, uh, which of course came into prominence, I think, around 2005 with the film V V for Vendetta. Um, It's now been adopted internationally by protesters against politics or financial institutions, other examples where people are protesting against authority. And this kind of feels like quite a fitting reincarnation for Guy Fawkes, really. Um that his, you know, that anonymous mask is 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 a sign of rebellion, if you like. And that is our latest and, and the most recent reincarnation, re re sort of use of this tradition, which I think is Fascinating. Oh, and one other thing, uh, they do still search the cellars of the Houses of Parliament before every new parliamentary session, just to make sure that there's no
0: gunpowder down there. That seems like a proper way to handle it. it it's, uh, we wouldn't want that to happen again, for sure. Exactly. <laughs> Well, and and just to be clear, again, we don't necessarily do that here, but I will gladly sit by a bonfire uh, or sit by just a, a small fire here in America on November 5th and think about all my friends in UK the UK. <laughs> <laughs> and Thank now you. um we are we're here today discussing this actually because you've got a new book coming out that is set during this time. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that book? Oh, thank you. Yes. Um,
1: Yes, that's right. I've got um, my new um, dual-time novel, um, The Winter Garden, draws on the years leading up to the gunpowder plot, and it focuses specifically on two women of the Catesby family, uh, Robert Catesby's mother, Anne, and his wife, Catherine, because so often... I think the gunpowder plot comes across as a a very male-dominated sort of episode of history. And I think, interestingly, we've kind of talked about that a bit when we're talking about the families and the network of, of connections and how many more People knew about it, um, and I wanted to explore that idea of who knew what and what they did about it through through the fiction. So that was why I took this uh, this this period of history as as the background um, to the Winter Garden. So um, so yes, that that was that was how I came to all of this extraordinary research, um, which I think, as, as we've been talking, is sort of such a remarkable episode in english history so i have built that into the the background of 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 the winter garden
0: so again everyone thank you so much to our guest today nicola cornick thank you so much um again to our listeners who wrote in with all the questions we can't do this without you and then to everyone who's listening to this week's episode so as always we appreciate your support we hope you'll tune in again next time as we continue just to keep answering all the questions from all of our experts um, that you want answered. So if you love the Tudors Dynasty podcast and want to show even more support, please consider becoming a patron where you'll not only receive the great content we offer now, but extra insider research, info, prizes, and other exciting opportunities only offered by subscribing. So until next time, thanks everyone for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudors Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.